Hey, what's up, people? This is episode 40. This is episode 40 of the Option Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Beach Volleyball National Events. Beach Volleyball National Events, aka BVNE, is the largest get notice showcase in the United States of America. We have as many as 20 to 25 recruiters from colleges looking at kids showcase their talents. BVNE, come play with us. It's also brought to you by NY Varsity Sports. That's me. That's me. Watching me. Watching you. It's also brought to you by Endless Summer Beach Volleyball. Endless Summer Beach Volleyball is one of the more elite volleyball clubs on the South Bay. We lead the country in recruitments per capita or commitments per capita. And some people get stuck here for AAUs, for AVP first without their coaches. Uh, come play with us. Endless Summer Beach Volleyball, a family that prays together, stays together. Ladies and gentlemen, this one you ain't going to believe. This is the great, great Stone Cold Chris Austin. And the episode starts... Should I say right now? Hey, what's up, people? This is episode 40 of the Option Podcast. You ask and I deliver because I got to give the people, give the people what they want. Chris, Austin, what's good, baby? It's all good. I'm, uh, <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. Uh, we can make some time to sit down and chat. Yeah, man, let's do it. Um, Hey, uh, before we got on set, we were talking a little bit about the CPA. Um, without sounding like this is an interview or an, or an inquisition, I don't possess the power of subpoena anyway. Um, what's um, Tell everybody about CPA. Let's do that. Okay. Let's start that so, way. The CPA facility uh, that Mr. Jason here is referring to, uh, Championship Performance Advantage, it's a facility for sports mentality and physicality that just opened up. Uh, to get a little more in-depth, it has indoor basketball, indoor volleyball. It's got beach volleyball options. It's got fitness, strength, conditioning, agility, band work, alleys, box jumping, recovery. Uh, shoot, mentality is really the big thing that separates it from other places who would consider themselves competition. We just dig into that mental work, you know, and it really shows in the athletes who work out with us in the past. It shows with the athletes who work out with us presently. And then those athletes, humans, people, younger, older, families, everybody who gets involved, like it's an immediate feel when you walk in. So already the people who've been coming through um, past clients and then present clients and then future clients, everybody is starting to really get that energy, you know, when they come in. So it's been a fun little project. It opened up on June 27th, which was just a couple of days ago. It's right off the 405 in Inglewood. Uh, yeah, it's easy access for anybody. There's people who come down from San Clemente. There's people who come down from Calabasas and everywhere in between, right in the South Bay. Yeah, man. Listen, first of all, the location is very, very convenient. Like you said, you you could be in and out uh, 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 faster than Kevin Klein. Um, I I went myself over the weekend. It was it was pretty cool, and I like the facilities and I like the intimacy. But the the one thing I liked in this, we talked about this before we got on air. Um, I like the people. I like the association. It's a combination of people who have a reputation for for um, doing things for, for the sport of volleyball and for sports as a general narrative. Also, yeah. people who are a part who are about serious fun, like Wendy Jones. She's about serious fun. You know, you yeah. zero fun. You, 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 you ain't about that fun. <laughs> Messing with you a little bit. Let me move that over here. I got you. Look at that. Look at that. Yeah. That's how I do that. Left and right. And the one thing, uh, I, I, again, that I said on air is that some, you know, some things are money making opportunities and some things are about business. But the one thing I liked about you is they don't pay you to care, you know, yeah. and the, your biggest secret, which to some people remains unequivocally safe. Is you give a crap. You really do, man. I really, really appreciate that about you. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely appreciate that, man. It's uh. Yeah. It's a staple for what we're trying to do in general, but at the CPA facility, the people who are around there with me, whether it's my partners in ownership, JJ and uh, Lynn Flanagan, mm-hmm. or if it's the clients who come in, if it's our primary staff, we've really tried to make sure that we set it up to be no riffraff. We want it to be a bunch of people who care, a bunch of people who really understand the value of helping others become their best. Mm-hmm. And that way the product ends up being super successful. And for us, Successful isn't like having a massive financial pocketbook because anybody who owns a small business knows 
you're putting money back into the business for years and years before you ever make a dollar. No but uh, more, it's making sure that there's the access that people are looking to have. There's the options that people are looking to have, which we have, such as the Option Podcast. Yep. And we want to make sure that everybody who comes through feels like they can be part of that family environment and it's not members only sort of thing, if that makes sense. Nah, it makes complete sense because, um, yeah, there, there are bubbles you know, and there are certain certain situations people don't feel com- uh, comfortable coming into. And sometimes that's just about considering the source of someone's pattern or someone's reputation, which which I, I would be more than glad to get into now. But we right now we're talking about something a little bit different. Um, and that's that's what I like about that. So since I got Chris Austin on a podcast, I want to I want to talk for the people listening at home. Chris Austin, longtime player, still an active player on the beach and on. um, Got you. And on. um. And on the indoor scene, two-time um, repeat champions, one of the, one of the the five repeat champions in the decade, right? Was this is the, there was the decade of repeat champions, if I'm correct, right? You was yeah, there was, was Irvine twice. There was a lot of repeat champions. I it? would say that we definitely, in mm-hmm. my opinion, had the most challenging road because the the repeat champions after that were both either number one or number two seeds for basically the whole season. Yeah. Um, but actually, it was pretty impressive to me that Loyola repeat with that that Thomas Jeske team. Yeah, that team was that team was real nice, and obviously Long That's, Beach State most recently they were a really nice team. And Ohio State before that, let's not forget yeah, that. Yeah, man, some of the programs who've been doing really well in men's volleyball. It's uh, the sport is developing in some ways. I would like to see it be a little bit cleaner in some ways in terms of the serve and pass game and just having the ideology and what players go where and some of the rules. But right now, people are putting out a pretty impressive product. Yeah, I had Eric Anderson on, um, who's part of the rules committee, um, yeah. on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, I'm like, I would really like, I mean, if people want to respect the sport and have respect for the sport, make it look like a sport and not not like a game. Stop, stop making, stop circumventing the rules and not executing the rules where the game just looks like, I don't know, like physical parcheesy. Okay, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I mean, I call me an old school purist. You know, I'm not, I'm not one of them cranky old dudes, but I got, you know, I got to keep it real. Um, I watched the the first time I've ever seen you. Um, I'm from New York, of course, you know, and I, I at that time I was mixing theater performance and I set for Bameso a little bit. If you know those those crazy, yeah, yeah, crazy yeah. Dominican dudes, Ulysses runs that program. Um, who, by the way, is my college rival. I played one year at um, Hunter, and he played for New Pulse. He played for Tony, uh, Tony Bonilla. So um, yeah, um, I was at Hunter for a cup of coffee. I, I got in, I got out. But I really loved how dynamic the offense was at Irvine. But the one thing that stuck out to me, because we were all watching it. Ronnie, my boy Ronnie from Crail, we were all watching in this basement. And, and everybody was like, oh, man, the oppo's cool. Oh, the set is good, cool. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Who's that setter? Who's that setter just keeping it straight and simple? You know, you had a lot of weapons around you, but the thing that I liked about you and the thing that puts you on my radar is you were hands high. It was almost a European style set. It wasn't so- someone that was just taking it in and out and just, you know, just and just flinging it for blocker deception. You you kept it very, very simple. You were in system. You had good peripheral vision um, where you was. I, I don't know if you were watching. This is what I wanted to ask you. If you were watching like the middle kind of disappear and then just, then just went to go. Or maybe maybe like a little bick, you know, where yeah. if you it, so, was, was it one of those things? Talk to I me. was big in college. Honestly, when I had first started at Irvine, mm-hmm. I was not that talented as a volleyball player in general. I was definitely the least experienced on the team. I was for sure like other than our liberos, the smallest. I wasn't in the best shape. Like I, I got a, a big break to be able to go to UCI and I did get surrounded by some really talented people, some really uh, experienced people and I developed a big time chip early on going there because um, I didn't feel like I already had the things that others had whether it was you know a name in the volleyball world or financial means or even something like in-state tuition which I didn't have at Irvine but yeah I give so much of my credit to who I became as a player and the success I was able to have in college to two things one the coaching staff I had both years so that first John's year Burrell, right? Uh, Andrea Becker, Mark Presho, Eddie Rapp, wow. like everybody who was on that staff had such a big role in making me become, you know, whatever I became. And then that second year having David Niffin, Mark Presho, Michelle Barge, Kevin Carroll, the, like I had unreal staffs. And uh, 
it was it was a big deal to have those but i had studs around me you know like so my whole deal was learning how to put the chess pieces in place i never had to play hero ball i never had to make super unreal plays from the service line from defense from offense like for me it was all about having the highest hitting percentage in the country was going to be about me being efficient so mm -hmm. i spent all my time with efficiency and there was this guy named will montgomery my my uh junior year when I had first transferred to Irvine because I only played there for two seasons for those of you who don't know um and he really like maybe knowingly maybe unknowingly like took me under his wing like he showed me how to work he showed me how to be unsatisfied he showed me how to push for more and he did all this from a backseat position you know like he started a couple matches but reality was he was our third libero and yeah. he was he was playing behind a freshman and behind somebody his same grade or, or a year above, a year, a year lower. And he just had this relentless kind of work ethic. The way people would describe Karch Garai, mm -hmm. this was probably the closest work ethic wise that I had seen. And, uh, and that guy really shaped my work ethic. So I would get up in the morning and we would do breakfast club and I would go in and I would get extra reps and I would work out locating the targets and setting balls in rhythm and just building consistency that I didn't have when I first got there. So to come back around and answer your question, Mm -hmm. Once we got to the finals, for me, like, although both years, Connor Hughes, Mike Brinkley, and Kevin Tilly were putting the ball on my forehead pretty consistently, but uh, I did develop a nice peripheral vision to be able to see all six players. So when I was in junior college and I had first started setting, because I started setting in college, I, I wasn't able to see squat or, you know, able to really put the ball where I wanted to all the time. And then once I got to that junior season at Irvine, Toward the end of the year, I started to have a decent peripheral vision in system of the right side of the opponent in the middle. And by the time I got to the end of my senior year, I could see it all. Like from 11 feet off the net, I could clearly see at least five players on my side of the net, yeah. not myself. And then I could see all six opponents like pretty clearly. So it was definitely a development of peripheral vision. One of my biggest challenges as a setter was – um. Um, once we got out of system a little bit and we got back in for some reason, and this, this is, you know, challenges get met, right? Um, but getting my, getting that peripheral vision where you could see most of the court, if not all back took, took, took a few plays as well. And, and that's, I think that's what I was alluding to before, uh, you, your ability to keep everything simple. Like you didn't need to be a uh, play hero ball. You didn't need to be dynamic was the one thing that was one of the things that put you on my radar. I'm like... I'm like, nah, I'm like, every, like, I'm telling you, like, New York is this conglomerate of international players because we have a big immigration population, the Russians in Brighton Beach, the Polacks and, you know, uh, um, South Brooklyn, the Dominicans uptown, um, uh, the Koreans in Flushing, and we all get together and we watch volleyball. And, they, you know, some people get wild by hitting high jumpers and blockers. And I was like, no, 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 no. I like that dude. I didn't, I didn't even, and, and it took me years. I didn't even know your name. <laughs> Aaron Wexler just um, said, hey, champion mindset um and he says what does that mean to you like i guess that's the question yeah that's ironic so over at cpa facility we run something called breakfast club because of what i just described that i experienced with will montgomery and some of my other teammates at irvine mm -hmm. uh, and it's something michael jordan used to do with scotty pippen and ron harper and some others but i'm such an advocate of three things when it comes to championship mindset preparation execution and then mentality. So in that order, in order to feel like you're going to be a champion, you have to be prepared. There's nobody, there's no one. The most talented person does not just step out onto the court or field or arena and they're just boom, like I'm laying it out, no problem. Like Jordan, for him to have things like the flu game, for him to have the shot on Craig Elo, for him to have the shot on Byron Russell, things like that. People cannot imagine how many repetitions go into that. And it's not just the classic, hey, I'm shooting the basketball. It's the repetition of feeling mm -hmm. as I'm in practice in the gym by myself. This is what I would do if there were 20,000 fans, 100,000 fans, a million fans. If the gym's quiet and I'm all by myself. Like whoever is able to replicate that more frequently, that's where it goes. And now... Being able to have preparation is a lot dependent on, unfortunately, what physical tools you bring to the party. So now in America, especially earlier and earlier, young athletes, older athletes are getting opportunities because they're, notice they're noticeably more athletic 
and more clean and more tall or whatever the case than other people. So they get thrown into junior national teams and extra repetitions and beach programs and number ones teams on clubs. So if you're the average person or the anomaly athlete, I would say you need to be very understanding of the importance of preparation. Like you better be at the gym earlier than everybody else. You better be the last one to leave. You better make sure that you get a clean warm up. You better make sure that your mentality is strong, which we'll get to on step three, but preparation is huge. Number two, when I say execution, that's kind of to the thing you were saying about simplicity. A lot of people that I watch, they train these habits, whether they have a coach or a team or a system, like they train all these habits and then they get into matches or they get into the real thing and they act completely different. They're like, well, all of a sudden I'm going to try to freestyle. Or I'm going to try to make these flashy plays or I'm going to try to do this stuff that I've never done before. I mean, everyone listening, they can name names too. (laughs) And I'm curious why it doesn't work out. And my thing is like, just do what you practiced. Like, and if you practiced it hard and you practice it fluid, it's going to work out for you. If you practice it half and you practice it, you know, weenie, then it probably won't work out as well. That's just how the percentages go. So execute what you've practiced before. Something that Spraw taught me that worked out really well for me at Irvine was, you should never do anything in a game that you have not tried before outside of a game unless it's an emergency. And then don't be fluid with the word emergency. Don't try to make every single other, every other play an emergency. Like an emergency is an emergency. And then the final thing is mentality. So in order to become a champion, you have to believe in yourself. Like you really do. And it's an easy thing to say. Like I hear a lot of people talk about, oh, be mentally tough or be mentally strong. But it's just words. They're not really putting time and energy into it. So a lot of the clients who I work with outside of sports, you know, whether it's business or relationships, biz, any of that sort of thing. So much of what we talk about is learning how to be really strong mentally. Like it's really learning how to have a strong mentality and how to have confidence. Cause if you notice any of the people in sports and we'll use other sports in volleyball, for example, Serena Williams, Michael Jordan, uh, LeBron James at this point in time, Kobe Bryant, yeah, John, Rock, John Jones, uh, uh, Micah Christensen, yeah. t- any of the people who I've played against or watched play, Casey Patterson, like these people, they believe in themselves. You know, and some people would call it cocky. Some people call it animated. Some people call it confident. Like for, forget what people say. Like the point is there is a common denominator between champions at the highest level Highest level of professional, highest level of club, highest level of college, it's they believe in themselves. And so if you're an athlete listening to this, if you're a coach listening to this, and you feel like you're either a person who does not have a complete belief in themselves and or you're a person who watches people you interact with, your kids, your athletes, your friends, and they don't have a belief in themselves, my personal advice would be to start spending time and money and energy or whatever on your mentality like it's completely overlooked the importance of mentality over athleticism touch sports any of those things and i you know in the beginning of this i couldn't i could not appreciate why you put mentality after the other two but i think i get it now i think the more you practice and the more the more confidence you build on your on your abilities the more you have these discoveries in practice uh and then then constant repetition through those discoveries the more confident you you are where like any and uh where doubt doubt's never gone it, it just shrinks all right um, I was using John Jones as an example, even though he's he's one of those guys that lost that loses to himself, you know, outside of the cage. But like, you can clearly see this man's preparation. You don't do spinning back elbows. You don't you don't out wrestle wrestlers. You don't outstrike strikers and out submit submission artists unless you watch a ton of videotape. You you and you have this confidence in your own abilities. He's he you, I don't, you obviously don't watch MMA, but he's one of the best. Um, you do. Yeah, a little bit. I yeah. mean, I'm not. Like, no, but he's I, but he's I, one of those guys. Anderson Silva. And yeah. I watch the cats coming up and with McGregor. He's, look, he's not a needle thing. mover like Rousey and and McGregor, but as far as like a goat or like a greatest of all time, the yeah. man's only loss was a disqualification uh, in, in what I call his best performance against a division uh, against a national championship wrestler. <laughs> so, oh. so. For me, I, I bounce back at you because this is a podcast and this is how yeah, we yeah, do. This is how we do. Chael Sonnen. 
MMA artist, and you can appreciate this, says they say that losing is not an option. And I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Losing is an option. Losing is the most readily available option all the time waiting for you. And and what you can do and the way you conquer losing and you conquer demons is not necessarily in the match, but the way you prepare for the match. And us as coaches always have to say, hey, you know, uh, next play or hey get this up or hey this is what you're doing well or we can let negative talk um, creep up in their in, in their heads and and I think as a coach and uh, and as uh, I'm a long time coach you're you're this you're this young beautiful mind which I still consider you young even though you feel even though you probably feel like you're 40 right now because you you um I think you accomplished so much so soon you, I, I know you feel older than you than you really are um, but I feel like it's incumbent upon us coaches to make sure that they're steered that direction. And it's not really a question. It's just a compliment that, that um, the reason why, the reason why you've enjoyed that success is because, because of preparation and, disco- and discovery. And that's cool. Cause you just, you just changed my mindset a little bit about mentality and this and that, because if mentality comes first and if it don't work, man, they're psychologically messed up for a long time. And, and we can name names. Some players never recover from that. Some yeah. players, when that game is 24 up, they're never going to get that kill. You know, they say they are, oh, I got this, I got this, I don't. I got this, I got this, I don't. So for us as coaches, and, I'm, and I, the floor is yours in a minute, um, two important things we need, we need them for them to realize about that fear that no one wants to talk about that's always there. One, um, it's natural. And two, the other team feels it too. <laughs> sometimes so yeah yeah Yeah. being able to have competition is what makes sports fun for the majority of people i would say there's 10 percent of people who play sports because it's social there's another 10 percent of people who play sports because they're forced and then the other 80 percent and i'm just shooting this off the top of my head these aren't legit statistics that's fine uh 80 percent is in it for because they like competing and they like exercising and they like trying to become their best or beat somebody else or PR or whatever it is. And in order to continue to have fun with sports, you have to continue to compete. And what gets challenging in today's generation, especially a lot is people want it softer. They want it. They want it easier. They want it later in the day. They want it shorter, but they want to have the same success. And if you're looking at anybody who's successful, they're putting in work. Like if you watch any of the people dominating on the beach right now, if you watch any of the people going to the Olympics, even somebody like Carrie Walsh, who so many people, when she was like, I'm going for a fifth Olympics or a sixth Olympics, actually, I think it is, if I'm not mistaken, fifth or sixth. Um, she's going for another Olympics. What, six if you, so you count people, indoor, right? She played 2000. Yeah, played yeah. indoor, yeah. Mm-hmm. So if there's anybody who was out there like, Carrie just needs to hang it up. I don't know why she's doing it. My first thought to myself was like, Carrie's going to another Olympics. Like mm-hmm. to have this piece already dialed in and other people are trying to play catch up to you if you have 50 percent of your athleticism left you're in the driver's seat yeah you're you're already doing things in real time that other people are trying to learn on the fly (laughs) so true it's it's never shocking to me why people are like repeat olympians or people are repeat champions or repeat whatever you know like you watch the michael jordan documentary that came out um and the last dance and michael jordan being able to repeat winning over and over and over once he figured it out and you get to watch all the trials and tribulations like oh his gambling thing it's distracting oh dennis rodman's leaving for las vegas oh scotty pippen's not playing oh michael jordan (laughs) took two years off of baseball it doesn't matter like because of this like all he has to do is snap his fingers and go it's like riding a bike like i know what to think i know what to feel And it was ironic because I actually didn't know this when I was watching The Last Dance. In that year that he came back um, and they made the playoffs, I believe the the second year. Yeah, 95. Before they started winning again. They were in the playoffs, I think against, I don't remember who it was against, maybe the Utah Jazz. But at the end of the game, they're in the series and Jordan passes the ball off. Like, it was very uncharacteristic no 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 it was it wasn't in one of the successes it was the oh, okay. year that oh, lost yeah. in the playoffs. oh it was against the magic orlando magic right and he's driving down at the end of the game uh for the series the game that could end the series he has the ball in his hands and every other jordan highlight you see from the shot on craig elo 
to the shots that he made against uh, Allen Houston and those guys to everything, like to the, the shot on Byron Russell, to the pass to Steve Kerr, the pass to uh, John Paxson, all these things. Like Jordan has the ball in his hands and he has it's a true. plan prematurely. Like he's on the bench. He knows. Last time I ran this play, I got doubled by Stockton and whoever. So Kerr's going to be open. So he's letting Steve Kerr know, hey, like Steve, be ready. Like yeah. be ready. The ball's going to come to you. And he did the same thing with John Paxson. But that one year he came back and that they didn't win, he he goes down the down the court and he has the ball in his hands and he's dribbling and he gets caught in the air frantically. He has an opportunity to shoot it, but he passes it off. And I, I forget who it was, but whoever he tried to pass it to made like a late cut away from the basket. Yeah. And he threw it out of bounds and that was the series. Huh. And so it was like a visual representation of Jordan's mentality wasn't on point. Like people can say, oh, he wasn't in shape. He still had a baseball body. All those things are factual. However, the primary thing I look at is in every other instance, Jordan had prematurely decided this is going to go my way. I'm going to make sure this goes my way as opposed to I hope it goes my way or we'll kind of see, you know, what comes of this situation. I'm just going to try to feel it and we'll, we'll figure it out. So bringing it back around again to your question or your statement, to me, mentality is more than 50% of the battle, especially in today's world where there's so many kids and adults who are advanced athletically. They jump high, they run fast, they can make high level plays. But yeah. what separates really now is, is mentality. Well, that's what separates the coaches too. Listen, I mean, we're both in the South Bay, Chris, and I'm, and I'm going to be real here. Might step on some toes, but you know me. I don't care. Um, there are a lot of juniors out there, and yeah. we're in a place where quantitatively, sooner or later, you're going to find high-quality players. So the best talented players in Dora and Outdoor are going to be in the South. In California, generally on the West Coast, right? New York's got a bunch, but <laughs> California, you have more people. There's a chance you're just going to have better players, period. Yeah. Now, these kids all can physically hit. They can all block. They can all serve. They can all run plays. you got d d dynamic setters with accurate location, which we don't have a whole nother half hour to get into. We ain't getting to that this episode. Um, it's up to us coaches to help them conquer the muscles between their ears. You yeah. can still use – someone can still use their star power and have a job, all right? And play glorified babysitter. That's a term. That's a term I like to use, Chris. Um, they could play glorified babysitter and yeah. just make sure their team doesn't beat themselves. Or some of these kids, you recognize they got some. They they. This kid, I'm 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 going to the extreme. This kid's got demons, right? I'll just because that's the best way for people to understand. I'm not saying he's got a little thing to twinge. No, some kids got demons. And so, and us, if that if we watch that kid play college or we watch him play on the beach scene or whatever, and and if you remember the demons, that means you've won, <laughs> because you have you have to remember the demons. They're not there anymore. And um, and again, not a question, but I think the reason of your success. And I and dude, 21 years in this. That's the only reason why I still still even have a job is because I'm I'm good at exercising the muscles between people's ears. What makes me different from any other young guy who's out there playing indoor or whatever that's that's gonna coach club? What what separates me from them? I mean, the only difference is people know them. They don't know me. So, so, um, love the work you did at SEC. I know you were doing some, some volunteer stuff, uh, assisting at U, uh, UCI, right? You, you were giving back a little bit. Um, and you said 50%, I guess that was going to be my question. Do you so think 50% is a low number mentality? What? Like of that being the importance? Yeah. I think it's honestly a little bit dependent. I can't, I really dislike giving out like hard and fast statistics on yeah. stuff. For me, stuff is a little bit more situational. Of course. But if I had to take the, you know, the, the lot of people, I would say I would put 50% on mentality. Mm -hmm. I would put 25% on physical presence. So hitting the ball, strong legs, strong arm, being able to hold yourself up and passing and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And now I would put 25% on decision-making, which I do think is different than mentality. Absolutely. I think Particularly as your position as a setter. Decision-making and understanding what to do, when to do it, that's that's a skill. It's something you need to work on. So that's kind of how for volleyball I would break that down just generically. It mm -hmm. gets more granular. Like, for example, the athletes who I work with or if I'm working with myself, far more granular. But if I were just being generic and I had 30 seconds to drop a sound bite, I would say 50% mentality, 25% physicality. 25% situational. 
Soundbite is super necessary, Chris, because, listen, people could say studies show this and studies show that, but at the end of the day, the real studies, the real scientists, uh, Chris, are us, okay? We're the ones in practice finding out what, you know, you got to drill, you want to see how it works, you want to see why it works, boom, and you you, you have different teams you're coaching, all right? It's it's always going to be better than some study that someone did on a squad that's not even on on that level, that might might even be a different sex, and, and the lurking variables, they only did the study for two weeks, they only did it on nine players instead of like 15. So, I mean, you, you, I mean, I'm very, very leery when someone tells me studies show. I want, uh, uh, me, you vet the study. You, you, you don't say, you don't just say study show and rest on that. What's the study? What's the sample size? Was it on the D1 team? No, it was a D2 team. Was it a men's team? No, it was a women's team. Was it an 18 person roster? No, it was not. Did you do it for a month? No, I did it for four days. What? Study show? Stop it. All right. At the end of the day, I'm not saying rest on our learns. I'm not saying our way is right. But at the end of the day, I think people have to concede, especially long time coaches, the scientists, no. the scientists, Chris, are us. And I know, listen, I know you have, you don't have a lot of time. You're not here for one of these long two hour stretches. Like, like, a, like a whole Aaron Wexler, man. We, we just went off. Eric Anderson, Casey Jennings is on the show. You know, we went a long time and I know you, you're a busy man. You got stuff to do, but I have to get this question in. Uh, otherwise I'm, I'm just going to turn in my podcast card. Whether you're playing club or whether you're playing high school or, or, or pre-college or, and you're coming up and you're learning this sport, and you, I, I don't know if you're a late bloomer or not, and you could tell me. My, my last question is, because I know you got to go, at what point in your childhood or volleyball life or was there a tournament or a particular game where you told yourself, I could do this for real? I think I could do this in college. I think I could do, I think I could probably, if I, and if I get good at this, I think I could play overseas. At what moment, was there a particular moment that you remember that you told yourself, wait, I could play yeah, volleyball for real? That's a good question. I have a pretty, I mean, I have a semi-photographic memory as it pertains to things that relate to sports, business, and relationships. But uh, to long story short, my process, I first found out about volleyball when I was in the spring semester, spring uh quarter of my freshman year in high school so in texas we're talking about huh in texas no i was in las vegas okay. so i was born in texas raised in vegas and uh i was playing basketball and my teammate said to me chris you should go to the intramurals i said intramurals for what he said intramurals for volleyball i said volleyball is a girl's sport what are you talking about and he said come to intramurals and i said i'm not going to intramurals he said i'll buy you lunch if you come to intramurals i said bet ah. I said, <laughs> so i go and i have a terrible time I'm not very good. Balls hit me in the face. Everybody else there is better than me. I didn't particularly feel like being bad at something. So I was like, I'm not coming back to this. He says, Chris, tryouts are in a week. Come back. And I said, I'm not coming back. He said, I'll buy you lunch for a week if you come back. I said, I don't have a lot of money, so I bet I'm in. So I was going to the tryouts just kind of expecting to get myself some lunch and then kind of bail after that. But I started to catch the hang of it a little bit over a couple of days. Like I had a couple of cool plays. Had some people like celebrate my successes around sort of thing. You know how it goes in a, in a beginner setting. And uh, after that, I was like, okay, well, maybe I'm going to play. So I play on the team. As the season goes, I really start to pick it up. I'm playing outside hitter in Vegas, mind you. This is not California volleyball. This is like at the time, Vegas did not have high-level volleyball. Now Vegas is starting to grow. They're doing some good stuff out there. Back then, it was not very high-level. So I go through that freshman year. I'm playing over the summer. I'm working on the drum line during the, during the fall. So I do drum line for like the concerts and football games, that sort of thing. Then I have basketball in the um, winter and then I have volleyball. And my whole goal is like, I want to play varsity in a sport. I'm going to try to make varsity in a sport as a sophomore, 10th grader. So I end up like grinding away at volleyball. And honestly, because volleyball was the sport that had least less talent in Las Vegas, basketball had pretty good talent. Um, I ended up making varsity as a 10th grader and I'm like, all right, I'm playing varsity. So I'm going to take this pretty seriously. And kind of halfway through that 10th grade year, I was like, Hmm, getting really fun for me. Like it's getting really fun. And I, I want to show up to the gym every day and I want to play and I want to try new stuff and get better and I can be experimental. So I decided to enroll in my first camp. Um, and I went to Long Beach state. Uh, that summer I went to Allen Knives camp and Eric went with me actually, who was the outside hitter who had introduced me for my basketball team. And I just got hooked after that. I went to the camp. I saw some California guys play and I started to compete right then. I was like, Oh, Oh no, I could do that. I could, 
I could do that. I could do that. So I went back home after that three-day camp, started working on it, working on the jump spin serve, working on passing tougher balls, working on hitting different angles, hitting out of the back row, trying all this stuff. And then by the time I got to 11th grade, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm starting to become more of a big dog in, the, in Vegas. I will continue to preface Vegas volleyball was not that high level. So I'm becoming like more of a, a really good player out in Las Vegas. And I started thinking about looking at club. I hadn't played club or really knew there was a club option. So the summer between 11th and 12th grade, I started playing my first club volleyball. I, I did not travel to JOs or know about it or anything like that. I just went and uh, practiced with a local team who had actually Antoine Aguilar on it. If you know who that is, he played at Long Beach State. It had a guy named Mark Lane who was a good player, uh, Josh Shea. Mark, uh, Antoine's probably the only name from there that, that would be like, oh, yeah, I remember that guy kind of thing. Oh, Joe, Joe Kaliakamoa, who mm-hmm. played at BYU. It was his parents' club. Um, so I, I really started to go, oh, man, this is fun. Like, I could do this at a high level. And then going into my 12th grade year, I was like, okay, I'm going to pursue playing division one. And then the story goes on and on from there. But I mean, we could speak all day about it. But basically that 12th grade year, I was like, I'm going to play division one volleyball. And I actually went to the University of Hawaii as a recruited Mm walk-on. The coaching staff had changed from um, Mike Wilton and Mason Kuo to what it is now, Charlie Wade and whoever. Um, And, oh, Josh Walker's there now. That's my guy. So not whoever. There it is. Uh, So after that, like I had gotten cut from the team and I was making the decision from then if I wanted to continue playing volleyball or go back home and be a dentist. And uh, so I sat in my dorm in Hawaii for about two days and I stirred on it and stirred on it. And I got a call from Trevor Johnson and Randy Tutor at Long Beach State saying, hey, Chris, we heard about your situation. If you're interested in coming to Long Beach, we saw you play at JO's um, in the club division. And we'd like to invite you, you know, to maybe end up coming here. So I packed my bags, went to Vegas for two days to grab my stuff, drove out to California, met your guy, Rob McLean. We stayed in an apartment together. I did not know a single person. I went over to the gym because my roommates weren't there. I heard a ball bouncing on the ground, hitting the door. I knock on it. I open it. It's Chris Johnson. And that's how our relationship started. To this day, he's my best friend. Although we're not spending as much time together right now because I'm trying to get the facility going. KJ, we're going to get that time in pretty soon, my guy. Um, Good dude, isn't he? Good dude, man. History, like it's just been like this along the way, but that's what made it fun. Like I went to Long Beach City, felt like I was becoming a really good player, and then some things didn't go my way, and then the the recruiting well was dry. Didn't know where I was gonna go. Chris Johnson got invited on a recruiting visit to Irvine. I tagged along, which is totally not protocol. No. along on his visit because I wanted to feel what it was like to go on a visit and I wasn't being recruited like that and he didn't end up going there for a couple different reasons but I started pressing them like I want to come to Irvine I want to play here da, 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 da. like I hadn't met Sparrow but Niffin who was the assistant coach at the time hits me back and is like Chris like Irvine's not going to be the place for you uh, if you want to explore being a student and not an athlete here maybe we can help you with that and I send back a super aggressive email and uh then I guess a guy broke the drug contract or four guys broke the drug contract and their circumstance changed. So Niffin sends me an email. He says, Chris, our circumstances at Irvine have changed. We'd like to invite you on an official visit. I go out. <laughs> I, without ever having met Spraw, mind you, I go out. I commit right then. Boom, I'm going. Like out of state tuition, $36,000 a year. I'm like, whatever, I'll figure it out. Start Hold coaching. on, let me, let, me, let me stop you for a second. Are you trying to tell me, Chris Austin, that you got an opportunity because four guys couldn't stay off the weed. <laughs> it was actually mushrooms. I'm not dropping names, but I'm pretty sure. I have no idea though. So I'm not. I'm, I'm not the first to ask, But all I knew was it was my end, so I'm getting in. And then from there, like it starts with that story I was telling you about, you know, my grind up at Irvine. I was like the last guy talent-wise, experience-wise, height-wise for sure. Mm-hmm. And I did not leave out of Irvine as the most talented player. There were way more talented guys on the team for sure, and I leaned on them. Like Kevin Tillies, we had yeah. Carson Clark, we had Daniel Stork, Mike Brinkley, Connor Hughes, Jeremy Dana. We had a litany of ballers. Yeah. I mean, the middles were insane. Dan McDonald, Scott Gavorkin, like yeah. ballers. And, and for uh, and for this guy, who's the one guy I remembered? And for this guy, for this New Yorker, for this guy had, that this guy that played overseas ball. Finals, yeah. But uh, 
overarchingly, like really, I, I lend so much of my success to the people around me. Like I had, I had really good timing with the coaches I had in my life at the right time, the players I had in my life at the right time. And then the influences outside of, outside of my, my gym, essentially. Yeah. Like I had really good mentors around me. My whole job was making sure that I took in the right information. And I freaking stumbled along the way a lot, especially off the court, big time stumbles. But oh, yeah. nonetheless, oh. like the thing I learned was a, a callous mind. Like I legitimately don't care what anybody thinks outside of the opinions I invite in. And that's what's really helped me at this point. Like be a business owner, be a leader of people, be able to facilitate playing and coaching, being able to blend outside of volleyball now with what I do. I do a, bu- a bunch of public speaking events all around the country. Yeah. And in order to be able to get to that next level for me and start to influence more people, I totally had to learn how to have a callous mind and not worry about other people's perceptions. So that would be what I leave everybody watching this with. Mm-hmm. If you want to get closer to becoming your best, you really have to start to understand the hierarchy of opinions. And at the top of that list should be your own opinion. Yeah. Don't read now, the, re- once don't read the reviews too much. <laughs> opinion, once you've decided it's going to be your own opinion, you better learn how to make it a good one. Mm. But the first thing is making sure that your own opinion is primary. Yeah. Listen, also, um, as an African-American uh, volleyball player, too, which is which is a very, very small population. Um, I think it's there's an old saying because I, I grew up. I'm, I'm mixed. My mom's black. My father's white. So I, I most of my life, I identify with being African-American. Grew up on Flatbush. You're like, you're not white. You're a light skinned brother. So so it's one of the, um, the so the old saying is white people have a job. Uh, black people have a responsibility. <laughs> and the weird thing is, I thought like. I'm like, wait a second, if both white people and black people conducted their lives or, or took that approach like they have a responsibility, I think it'd just be a better world altogether, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, ultimately <laughs> for me, as it pertains to the equality stuff and all the crappy stuff that's been happening in the world over the last freaking 300 yeah. years. But yeah. uh, but highlighted, but seem to be highlighted now. For me, the way we get closer and you're not going to change 100% of people. But we could totally have a bigger push to change 95. We could totally have a bigger push to make it majority rules with equality. That's, a, that's still an A, right? That's an A. It totally starts with the process of making people in other things outside of skin color more equal. Like something I say frequently to people that a lot of people rub against and some people like really vibe with, or some people really get that energy from me with is age is not a thing outside of physical. So there's physical things you do and you don't do depending on age. But if you don't give the responsibility to a 14 year old to handle their own stuff the same way you'd give it to a 35 year old, you're treating, you're treating people like they don't have the capacity to be able to handle their own stuff. And so way back in the day, and when I say way back in the day, I'm talking like 10 minutes ago, when there is this equality or this inequality of, well, if you're a black person, you can or cannot do this. If you're a white person or a Hispanic person or whatever, you can or cannot do this. That mentality, whether it's put on front street, like it used to be more so, or whether now it's in the shadows more so, on the West Coast, because it's still pretty gnarly if you go to some places in the middle of the country. But to be able to get rid of that stigma, to be able to get rid of that aura, more people would have to create equality in all situations. Like, it can't be separate. Like, hey, if you're not 18 years old, I got to go with you to your sessions and your lessons and your school, and I got to stand in front of your teacher and speak for you. But I want you to feel like a a well-respected Black young man or a well-respected white young lady or whatever it is like it all correlates if i watch my parent allow themselves to be talked to a certain way by a person who's older or younger or has more money or less money or is black or white perception is just going to continue to circulate like this and it's going to be what it's based off of perception is women can't lift as much as men can perception is A black person has to work harder than a white person to get to point A or B. All those things right now are freaking factual. Yeah. People have to work harder as a whole. Does every single black person have to work harder than every single white person? No. No. But majority rules. 
And do people who have more money have more means than people who don't have money? For sure. But if we get to the point where there's a legitimate equality in mentality and opportunity, and we forget about starting lines. So right now, if a person who's in front of me, it's my same age, same height, same everything. They have half a million dollars to invest in private lessons for whatever their craft is. They can live in a, a safe area where they don't have to go do random pickups. They can afford a nanny so they don't have to stay back and raise their baby sister while the other person who does have money can go to all these trainings. Like all these things add up over time. So the way we get closer to equality, in my opinion, is the starting point of all things starting to have more equality. It can't be, hey, there's discrimination. If you're not this age or you don't have this much experience or you haven't done X, Y, and Z, like more often the eye test has to be used. However, that being said, it's challenging because in order to use the eye test, you have to be dealing with people who are logical and not everybody's logical. So you find that in sports a lot to bring this all the way back around since this is a volleyball podcast. Not Everybody really. has the debate like, <laughs> oh, my, my daughter should be playing more. My son should be playing more. Like, well, the eye test shows that 99% of people say that that's not the case. But if we bring in one of the irrational people to that 99, now you have a case to be able to throw it out like in court. If you have a murder charge in court and one person brings false evidence, like in the OJ case when uh, Furman or whatever his name was. Perjured himself. Tampered with the evidence. Yeah. And perjured well, himself in court. The whole thing now is thrown out, which is unfortunate because the evidence, not to forget the OJ thing. Yeah. The evidence of these other situations is thrown yeah. like back against the wall. This says you did it. 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 Yeah. But if on number five, there's some shenanigans by an individual, the whole thing's thrown out. That's yeah. the way the world works pretty frequently right now. Yeah. And so the best thing we can do right now is create influence from those with the best minds and the best fluidity and the people who are best able to articulate it mm -hmm. to start to turn that wheel to more equality. Right. And a lot of people are talking about it. A lot of people are taking action right now. Like, let's get in the streets. Let's protest. That's all positive stuff. But when you have people start to take advantage, like, hey, we're going to protest. And then the looters are like, oh, perfect opportunity for us yeah. to be able to shit against. It dilutes it. And so when you dilute it and it's very it's, easy, right? So, see, yeah. this is why we're not equal. Yep. Yeah, it's very easy. I call it a straw man fallacy. They take the, yeah. they take the weakest part of someone's argument and then use that to rep, to represent uh, use that to to represent their argument as a collective whole. And I think that's lazy and I think that's cheap, but people do do that because some sometimes people are lazy and sometimes people are cheap. OJ yeah. was a perfect description too. You know, I call that a straw man defense. They took for, uh, firm um, this guy's perjury in court and also tampering with the evidence and use it to dismiss DNA, which was not not like a real thing in 1994, but but would have been we probably would have convicted him today uh, um and i'd like to close with this and i talked to coach patrick Dietz about this because he talked about sports being the ultimate meritocracy and i had to make a quick correction on this i described it as stair, stair running corporate challenges people are running these stairs like in these big buildings so chris you and me compete right we run stairs you, you run 44 stairs i run 44 stairs let's say i run 60 because i'm a boss like that um that's meritocracy getting into the building to run the stairs is not. And that was something I, uh, um, uh, I, I needed to point out to some of my friends that was very, very, very important. Getting in the building is not a meritocracy. When you're in the building, yeah, of course, because it's equal, right? If we're in a court playing doubles, <laughs> you know, and if I didn't take a bat to your knees the night before, I think I'm gonna lose that match, <laughs> right? In fact, even if I did take the bat to your knees, I think I'm still losing that match. I think your mentality doesn't allow you to lose to people <laughs> those yeah. matches. Yeah. I mean, for me, <laughs> as it pertains to my career like <laughs> i want to be the best i can be and yeah. i want to play at the highest level and i've had the mentality of pursuing olympics and pursuing avp championships yeah. and pursuing fivb wins at the five-star level and all this stuff and it comes down to whatever you're going to decide to put your energy into for me right now if i'm being honest my energy is divided my energy is i'm a beach volleyball player but i'm also a business owner and i'm also influential and I'm also a book writer and I'm also all these things. So yes, I can pack it in far better than 99% of the world currently chooses to pack it in because it's a decision, but- A lot of it is, yeah. I'm, I'm for sure on the tip right now of I'm building to be as influential as possible. Like I have a message and I have a story that can change the effing game. Like it can change the world and it can change the game. 
So I'm making sure I'm putting in all the time and energy right now to put myself at a level to have other people be able to get to their best. That's my whole goal. And along the way, that comes with having to be successful. So when people come out and watch you on the beach, on the stage, in the gym, in the whatever, like they go, that's a vision of success. Like that's a visual right there. I can follow that because I see the same stuff he's doing this. I see him putting into action sort of thing. So that's got to be the tip I'm on. Man, and and you know what? And, and in pursuit of that, we ran way over the time that you had that, that you actually had to do this podcast. So before okay, we go, man, man we gotta- I, I wanted to plug. I, I want you to plug in some things for yourself before we go. But I, I also wanted to plug in your book, uh, The Way. I actually I actually read like the first the first three chapters for uh, Chris Austin. People wrote a book called The Way. It shows the path of five different people that led to a, a volleyball success and, and the hard roads and the ways and the ebbs and flows and and how these people found a way to mediate in a, uh, in a way that their big wave didn't crash. So um, Chris Austin's got a book. It's called The Way. I, I, I read it. I'm loving it. Um, Chris, any plugs before you go? Any anything you want to plug in before you go? Not really CPA for me. or. I got a lot of stuff going on, but overarchingly, if you want to figure out, you know, anything that has to do with me, just hit up Crispy Austin Instagram, CrispyAustin.com. Setter College. Um, let's not let's yeah, plug that Setter, too, my man. If you're looking for sports stuff, hit up the CPA facility for sure. CPAfacility.com. We're right over here waiting on you. We got a grip of trainers and a grip of people who do stuff at the highest level. Champions. I mean, everybody yeah. that you could look for. And then it. as far as the book goes, my second book is on the way. It's going to be ready in about six months, published and everything. Um, and that one's going to be about business, sports, relationships. But this primary one that I wrote first is, like Jason said, the most successful youth club team in history and how they did it. Rest in peace, Charlie Jenkins. Like, you find out about that guy, Charlie Jenkins. I mean, that is the Miyagi. That is the guru. That is the that is the art of learning cat. So you want to check out that story, pay close attention to Charlie Jenkins. Yes, listen up, people. Chris got a story to tell, okay? But for today, for today, at least for today, that this this chapter is done. But if you want to, um, again, he he plugged it in. If you any any at any point you need to get with him for some reason, and if you want to be a better setter, want to be a better human being, this is your guy, all right? For all of you at home, all right. For all of you online at Starbucks, looking at your iPhone and watching this. For all of you people on your iPads. For all of you people on your desktop. I'm old school. We rule the world. For Chris Stone Cold Steve, Chris Austin. I am Jason DeBellis, and at least for this episode, until the next episode, I say. We're out. Come check out the Option Podcast on OptionDB.com. It's also available on iTunes and Spotify and on YouTube under the NY Varsity Sports Handle. You're going to love what you hear.